Thank you uh, for joining us. We've got what I think is going to be a very interesting and eye-opening uh, program tonight. Uh, let me welcome straight away my guest, Paul Washer. Hi, Paul. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Great to meet you. Great to, to, to have you with us. Paul, as you might have just picked up from that accent, is from uh, Alabama. <laughs> uh, well, he's living in Alabama at the moment. Um, he became a believer at the University of Texas, and you, you were studying to become an oil and gas lawyer. Yes, I was in the undergraduate program, and all I could think about was making money. Yeah. <laughs> Now, God had some other ideas, did he not? Yes, he did. Yes, <laughs> and, he did. And, and was it there that you became a Christian, or was that soon after? It was there at the university the third year. A young man uh, came to my room one night at one in the morning, trembling, and said that uh, he could no longer battle with God, that God <laughs> had been dealing with him for two weeks to come over and witness to me, but he was afraid to. And he <laughs> shared Christ with me that yeah. night, and probably a month and a half later, I guess, right. I became a Christian. Right. And how long before this, uh, you know, the, the, the money side of it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're so used to, pardon me, the American preachers preaching right. about money. You know, right. it, you know, it seems so funny for one to turn their back on it. But how long was it before God began to deal with you? You know, it was it was immediate. Uh, within a few days, I started sharing on the streets. I got involved in a work in our church where we were reaching out to uh, poorer children um, on the wrong side of the tracks and things like that. And um, it, it wasn't a struggle, honestly. It, it just went away. Now, of course, there were other things that did not go away that are a struggle until today, but that has really never been an issue since coming right. to Christ. And you became a missionary to yes. Peru. Yes, yeah. I did. Um, did. Did you feel God really called you there? I mean, how did you get out to Peru? Well, it was my third year in seminary, and... Um, I was praying, of course. At that time, I was working at a street ministry in, in the Fort Worth, Dallas area called Beautiful Feet. <laughs> and um, at the end, I even lived with the street people. Mm. And it's a marvelous ministry in which just reaching out to those who are down and out. And I was praying, God, do you want me to stay here? Do you want me to pastor? Do you want me to be a missionary or X? And um, after praying for about six months, the Lord made it clear that it was Peru. He had also opened doors to go there. And one thing led to another, and I was in Peru. Yeah. And Heart Cry Missionary Society, which we'll talk a little bit about as we go through tonight, but that began there. Yes. And why? I mean, you, you began it. I yes. mean, But there was a reason. What was there? I mean, you, you didn't just start it for the sake right. of it. What, what, what was your desire? Well, my desire, um, I went to Peru under the uh, authority of just a small local church in the middle of a cornfield in <laughs> Illinois. So I didn't have uh, a lot of people around me. My best friends became the Peruvians. And it was during the time of the war between the Shining Path and the Peruvian government. Right. It was a terrible time. Bombs, explosions, fights, gunfire, people dying in the streets. And it just drew me together, I guess, with my Peruvian brothers. Well, I began to meet men who had labored in the jungle, in the mountains, uh, men who lived on $50 a month, $25 a month, who lived in places we wouldn't keep our animals, and yet they had started many churches. One man that I know of, Angel Colmenares, that started hundreds of churches. And I began to think to myself, I know the drawbacks of working with indigenous missions. You do not want to make the indigenous missionary dependent upon an outside missionary organization. But I thought, 
and began to pray, Lord, give me wisdom that we could somehow work and help these men, at least give them the tools, get them out in the field, help them get trained. And that's how it started. Right. And today, I mean, it's more than just Peru, isn't it? I mean, Eastern Europe and yes. other places as well. When, when it's in, uh, I think, 19 countries now. Wow. But one of the things that's so important, and yesterday was one of the greatest days of my life because I got to go to Bristol <laughs> and I got to see uh, the man that's been most influential in my life other than the men of the scriptures, and that is George Mueller. Right. Because when yes. we started, when I started, I said, Lord, I'm, I'm not a strong man. I'm not a, a salesman. Um, and we took those principles that George Mueller had in his orphanage yeah. and decided we'd not depart from them. So although if people ask us what we're doing, we will tell them, but we do not raise support. We do not make our needs known mm. in order to manipulate brothers and sisters in Christ. I used to hear those TV evangelists that would say, you know, if you don't give to us, we'll be off the air. And yeah. I used to just wave at them, <laughs> yeah, you know, yes. bye. Uh, I, I just, if God... Is if God is our patron, he'll keep mm. us going. That's what Mueller said. And if he doesn't, we shouldn't be kept going. Mm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's coming to, obviously, what we're going to deal with in our whole subject tonight, which I will introduce in just a minute. But it, it is that total dependency on him, isn't it? Yes. That whatever we're doing, he, we put our dependency on him. And in the end, whereas men and women may be part of that answer. Right. It's God that causes them to be part of that you answer. You know, the more we depend upon the arm of the flesh, the less we are going to see the power of God. And that's just all there is to it. God works circumstances. He creates events so that men are left utterly helpless. Mm. So that when victory does come, when the triumph does come, everyone knows it's from God. That's why he uses the weakest of men. Amen. Because if anything is accomplished, it, it has to be God. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, I could talk about that all night, but I know we want to get on to, to, to look at some scriptures, and I want to. We, we've, we've got a wonderful title um, for the subject of our show tonight, and it is this, Decisional Regeneration. Decisional Regeneration. Now... Probably 50% of our viewers are sitting there saying, what is decisional regeneration? There's a good question to start with. So let's start to unpack it. This is the, the subject that we want to talk about tonight. Let's start to unpack it. Well, if we that. don't explain it, the show won't be controversial. <laughs> <laughs> no, decisional regeneration, first of all, it deals with salvation how a person is saved. Now, the scriptures are quite clear. A person must make a decision. A person must repent, a changing of the mind. A person must place their faith solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. So there is a decision. The problem is, is when we take the glorious gospel of our blessed God, reduce it down to a few spiritual questions, and if someone answers the right questions, we get them to pray a prayer, and after they pray that prayer, we tell them they're saved because they've repeated that prayer. And that is simply not biblical. It is, uh, it is suppose, I guess it would, could be called efficient if you wanted to have a large crusade. You can also write back home if you're a missionary and tell people that, uh, you know, a thousand people got saved last week. The only problem is hardly any of them are going to show up in the church. Mm -hmm. You see, a soul is precious. 
It is precious to God. Jesus Christ died for men. And in contemporary Christianity, we are beginning to deal with those souls in a superficial manner. And I am against that. Mm -hmm. Am I against a decision? Absolutely not. The Bible calls for one. Am I against an invitation? We ought to invite men to Christ, beg them to come to Christ. But what we do with them when they inquire... We cannot just run them like cattle through four or five little steps and then pronounce them saved at the end. We must deal with them biblically so that they have a biblical assurance of salvation. It's, it comes down to the heart of God, doesn't it? Because if God wants to save that person, God has chosen that person, there's something God wants to do in them. And we almost shortchange them. Is that what you're saying? If, if we just get them to sign the card or make right. the decision, we've actually shortchanged them on something that is going to really change their life. Well, first of all, there are countless, everyone recognizes this in the United States, in England, in the West, there are countless multitudes of people who believe they are saved because one time they prayed a prayer at a crusade or with someone in personal evangelism. And yet if you were to examine their life, there is nothing of fruit. Now this is not judging. This is simply showing that Jesus said you will know them by their fruits and there's, there's nothing there. There's no activity. So, because of the way we're doing evangelism, we're giving false assurance to many people who are not truly converted. And then there are others who have truly been converted, not because of us, but in spite of us, but they never come to have a biblical assurance of salvation. Their assurance depends upon their judgment of their own sincerity with regard to the decision they made. Mm -hmm. And that's wrong. Right. What I'm going to do, we're, we're going to develop this, but I'm going to open the... Uh, text and I'm going to open the email. I've already got one email. In fact, we had one email before before the program even went on air and I'll be asking you those questions in just a minute, Paul. But uh, um, maybe you've got others and, and maybe uh, Paul mentioned that, that some of the things that said tonight could be controversial, but are they biblical? And I think that's the thing and if you take what Paul says and think, no, it's not biblical, well, you can share that in an email you can share that we we will discuss it we will look at it we will come back on that if um if you're going to have problems tonight over some of the things that uh, paul says please come on and ask the questions because we don't want to leave people um you know in in, in a sort of a state of not knowing we want to really uh dot the i's we want to cross the t's so that folks will know uh what uh we would see what paul would see the scriptures are saying so there's a text 07781 472647 email live at god at live at talkgod.com do come on and uh, share uh, with us uh, there you talked there about having biblical assurance right um what do you mean? Is there a non-biblical assurance that some people feel they have? So I guess the question I'm asking is people sitting out there watching this thinking, well, wait a minute, was, was Paul talking about me just then? How can somebody know that they, that they are truly saved? Okay, well, let's first of all just look at something that's very important. A person comes forward 
in a crusade, maybe with a multitude of other people, and maybe genuinely the Lord is, is, is drawing them. Or maybe they've just come down because there's been Christians planted in the auditorium to come down first to make it easy <laughs> for them. Or the music, or so many other ways to psychologically and emotionally manipulate people. But let's say that they've come down forward, and the preacher stands before them and says, um, Now, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I want you to think about the man in the West, okay? The man from the United States, and yes, I'm going to include the United <laughs> Kingdom. Just think about us. We are, even our own secular psychologists tell us, we're a self-centered, self-absorbed people, okay? So he said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So here's a self-absorbed human being who goes, what? God has a wonderful plan for my life? That's great! I have a wonderful plan for my life. God loves me. I love me too. And you're telling me this God will come into my life, fix everything, and make my life better. Now, we all know there's some bad theology in that. It is true that God loves men and that He does have a miraculous plan. But there we go. Something that ought to be explained clearly of the call and the cost of discipleship, it's just thrown out there. Mm -hmm. So then they say, well, do you know you're a sinner? And the person says, well, yes. So then they want to go on to the next question. Here's the problem. Go ask the devil if he knows he's a sinner. He'll say, well, yes, I am, and a mighty fine one at that. <laughs> you see, the question is not, do you know you're a sinner? The question is, as you have sat under the preaching of the gospel, has God so worked in your heart as to begin a work of repentance so that your mind is changing with regard to sin. We're not saying perfect repentance or a perfect change of mind, but is there evidence that God is working so that the sin you once loved you now hate mm. and the sin you once embraced you now want to run away from? So the question is not just, you know, do you know you're a sinner? But if someone says, yes, I do, then usually go to the next question, would you like to go to heaven? <laughs> well... Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Who absolutely. doesn't? I mean, absolutely. that's what political theory is all about. It's mm -hmm. about creating a utopia. Mm -hmm. And I make this statement, and it, it, it's just true. Everyone wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. <laughs> you see, it's misleading. Mm -hmm. The question ought to be, since you've sat under the preaching of the gospel, has God so worked in your life that there's a desire for Him? No, I'm not talking about a full-blown Christian, you know, maturity. But I'm just saying, is something going on in your heart, mm -hmm. you see? Is, is, is there a desire for God? Do you want Christ? Do you esteem Him? You see? And then, if someone says, yes, I want to go to heaven, then it comes down to, well, um, pray this prayer. Now, you cannot find that in the New Testament. The apostolic call... The call of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so, when, when I talk to people and I say, you know, the call of the gospel is this, repent and believe. Then, as I talk with them and converse with them, you see, sometimes the evangelist can't go to the restaurant after he preaches. He may have to stay there till five in the morning, you see, because souls are that important. And when someone says, well, I think I'm repentant, but... What does that mean? Then you go through Scripture and you show them this is what repentance is. It's a change of mind. But it also dealings, it deals with a breaking of the heart, a desire to be a different person, to walk in a different way. Can you see these things? And it's so wonderful when you hear someone say, I can see that. What you're showing me, I can see that in my life right now. 
I mean, a little bit, it's there. And then the evangelist, you, you affirm them. Praise the Lord. That's the beginning of repentance. Mm-hmm. Next question, do you believe? And then someone will sit there and go, well, I think I believe. What does it mean? And then you show them in the Scriptures. So instead of just simply leading them through something, getting them to make a decision, you help them see whether they have truly repented, whether they have truly believed. And you're using the Scriptures. Now again, I want to say something. There is a biblical definition of repentance and a biblical definition of faith. If we take all the Scriptures together, it's a massive doctrine. When we talk about repentance unto salvation or faith unto salvation, we're not saying that the Christian has to have this full-blown Puritan type of repentance and faith in order to be saved, but the seeds of it. It may be small, it may be meager, but it will be genuine. Mm -hmm. Then if someone says, yes, I have that, I believe God has saved me, then there's time for gospel warnings. And, And what is that like? In love you say this, now look, the evidence that you have truly come to believe is that God, who began a good work in you, is going to continue it. You see, the evidence of justification, that, that God has declared you right before His throne by virtue of the merit of Jesus Christ, the evidence of justification is sanctification, that He begins to work in your life. Now, this is not a works salvation. That is, that is a, a horrible heresy. We're saved by faith alone, the five solas, faith alone. But faith involves regeneration. And regeneration changes our nature. And this faithful God who's led us this far to save us begins to lead us onto holiness. Now, what does that look like? Over a, the lifetime of that believer, there will be gradual growth. And it'll be sometimes two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes three steps forward and five steps back. It's not a growth just like this. It's more of a growth of Mm kind of like this. Mm -hmm. But there will be growth. Now, the Scripture recognizes that men grow at different degrees, that not all men or women reach the same magnificent level of spirituality. But if a person is truly saved... They will continue on in the things of God, and there will be fruit. Okay. And we need to deal with those things. Great. Terrific foundation. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, I needed to lay that down. Yeah, I, I, that's <laughs> why I never stopped you, uh, because, because that is the foundation right. of what you want to share tonight, and, and, right. and we need to have that. By the way, can I say your fan club is, is already emailing in, telling how great you are. and how. Well, I, I, I know. I, I, they ought to live with me for uh, a week. <laughs> Or talk to my wife. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I always say, yes. <laughs> but uh, no, there obviously many are, are, are blessed by, by what you're sharing. And, um, and there are also questions which we'll come on to in just a minute. Um, but if, coming back to what I said, if, if somebody out there uh-huh. made a decision, whatever mm-hmm. that means, in, in the widest sense, a, a few years ago, and there is no change in their life, no desire for change, no beginning, because as you said, it, 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 it's not perfection overnight, mm-hmm. it, it is. You would feel constrained to believe, I think, from what you've said, that that really wasn't a true repentance to salvation. Well, is that what you're saying? I mean, Well, let me put it this way. I would not make the judgment call 
Yeah, right. But as a minister of the gospel and as someone who must love this person, I would go to them and say, have you ever gone through the scriptures to look at the biblical evidences of conversion so that you might have a biblical assurance? Can I work with you on that? And if they ask me why, I would be honest. Mm -hmm. I love you and I sincerely desire f for you to have a biblical assurance and I do fear for you because I see some things that do not parallel with Scripture. We do that in love. We do that in humility. I would hope that someone would do that to me. Yes. You yes. say. Yes. Th th you see, this fellowship, everyone thinks iron sharpening iron. Do they think we're doing that with styrofoam files? Yes. I mean, <laughs> iron sharpening iron means we address one another yes. in the Scriptures. Yes. Yes. And that's love because yes. it's costly. The person can turn on you. But it's also the way you do it, isn't it? Because it again, is. you've said it again and again. Yeah. That that soul is precious to yes. God. Yes. It it's not a statistic. It, it, it's not somebody that you just want to get another knot no. on your belt. You love you know God loves them and therefore as his servant you want to love them right. and and, and I think that is so paramount in, in, in what we're saying here, isn't yes. it? it? It really is. And, and, and listen, the work of an evangelist, it, it begins when he gets down from that pulpit. Mm. You know, I'm actually only 19 years old. I'm just this old because I have to deal with so many people in counseling. I mean, you know, I, I go to a place. These are souls. Mm. You know, this is what we're about. We're not about, about a platform performance. We're about preaching the gospel to men and women who, if they die without Christ, will be lost forever. And when they come forward, we simply can't pass them off to somebody. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's, if it's a great ordeal, hopefully we have other men and women who are properly trained in the biblical and historical way of dealing with inquirers. But, but we must give our lives to this. Dealing with people personally. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned in answer to my last question that you would go up to that person and seek to go through the scriptures right. to, to to help them to see what 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 are the signs what 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 are right. the clear evidences right. of salvation. What are some of the things that you would show them at, well, at such a time? First of all, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew seven, and that goes beyond just false prophets. You will know them by their fruit. And I, let me just go there for just a moment. Yeah. Matthew 7. Matthew yeah. 7. Now, he goes on. I mean, there's so many places where we could look. But let's go to verse 16. Mm -hmm. You will know them by their fruits. And then look at uh, verse 20. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now I want to remind people this is in the very same context where he said, judge not lest you be judged. Yes. Now, people will come to me after I've preached sometimes and they'll go, judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> and I'll always say, twist not scripture lest you be like the devil. Because that's not what that means. That's right. He's yes. talking about a group of Pharisees who are literally cannibalizing one another. Mm. People driven by hatred. Driven by a desire to promote themselves religiously. But we're told throughout all the scriptures that we're to sharpen one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. And, and so the fundamental issue is here that he says, 
You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Now this is important. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. What we're talking about here in conversion is something more than a human decision. It is a supernatural work of God on par with the creation of the world and even as compared to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When someone is saved, the doctrine of regeneration, like in Ezekiel, for example, 36, he says, I will take out your heart of stone, a heart that will not respond to divine stimuli, and I'll put in its place a heart of flesh. Amen. You see that? Amen. A heart of flesh that when you pinch it, it responds. Yeah. It reacts. And so a Christian is fundamentally, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a new creature. A new creature fundamentally lives a different way. Now notice what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. So every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears good fruit. A good bears tree bears bad fruit. Bears bad yes, fruit I'm yeah. sorry. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Mm. The idea is this. Our decisions are fundamentally founded and determined by our nature. Regeneration changes our nature. A good way of looking at it is this. Man has only two problems. Our one problem. It's sin. Now, that manifests itself in two ways. One, the condemnation of sin. And that is dealt with in justification. We believe in Jesus Christ and we stand justified before God, the righteousness of God in Christ before Amen. Him. That's taken care of that problem. So justification takes care of the problem of condemnation. But regeneration takes care of the problem of the power of sin in our life. We are changed into a new creature who wants to do new things. Now, an illustration that Spurgeon gave. Imagine that uh, we had two plates of food here. One very fine English food and the other thing a bucket of slop. And we had a pig in the studio and we let him go. He's going to run to the slop. Why? That's what pigs do. That's his nature. He's going to stick his head in there. He's going to eat. He's going to enjoy it. He's not going to have trouble with his stomach and he's not going to be ashamed. Yes. That's what pigs do. Yeah. But if in one second I could change the nature of that pig into a nature of a man and he became a man. Yeah. The very things he was engulfing down, he would be vomiting up, mm -hmm. you see. He could not enjoy. It is against his nature. And also, he is not going to have the confidence of a pig anymore as a man. He's going to be ashamed for the very things he's doing. Now, as he notices that he's a man, later on, he may be deceived into sticking his head back in that bucket. But when he does, he knows it's wrong. And when he puts it in his mouth, he can't get it down. Why? He is changed. Yes. Now... When it says here that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, it is not talking about Christian perfectionism. There's no such thing. As a matter of fact, one of the evidences that a person has been born again is that they recognize sin in their life. Mm. What it's talking about is a style of life. A new nature is going to produce a new kind of fruit. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be bad apples. Doesn't mean there's not going to be problems. But over the long haul, you're going to see a dramatic change. Now, when Paul comes to the church in Corinth, and we all know how they were living. They were pretty infamous mm -hmm. for their, their manner, their, their manner of living. Paul doesn't come to them and say, you know, you're acting really bad. Let's talk about the time you made your decision for Christ. That's not what he says. Yeah. He says this, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Mm -hmm. Now, the great question always in the Christian faith is one of authority. 
What is our standard? Is it my emotions? Is it my experience? We all know that orthodoxy demands that we say the canon, the scriptures. That is the standard by which I must compare my life to have a biblical assurance. Fortunately, in God's wisdom, he gave us a book. It's 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 5, this is what the apostle writes. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John, J.C. Ryle has a great work on this. Others do. John MacArthur. But John takes the epistle and what he's doing is he's giving us a series of tests. And by comparing our lives to these tests, mm -hmm. we can determine or at least to a greater degree have a biblical assurance by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has definitely done a work in us. Mm. Let, let me ask you, developing this, I mean, here you are sitting down with this person, uh -huh. and you've just shared something of what you've just shared with us there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they've said to you, yeah, I, I see that. You know, this, this isn't in my life. How do you help them move on from there? I say, well, let you and I sit here, no matter how long it takes, no matter how many times we have to meet, let's go through the scriptures until you are assured biblically that you have been born again and you can walk in that freedom. Mm. You see, there, there are a few areas where we're, assurance comes from the logical study of scripture. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Therefore, it's logical. He who believes in him has everlasting life. Then there is a sense of something that we really can't get our hands around, but we can't throw it out, in the sense of the uh, subjective. Mm -hmm. You know as well as I do, people who you've seen who have been born again, you yourself, the moment of your conversion, mm. you knew something had <laughs> yeah, happened absolutely. to you, yeah. okay? <laughs> it, was, was real, it was subjective, though, yeah. okay? Yes. It was an experience, yeah. all right? So that's another part of it. That, so we talk about the logical, you know, just logically looking at Scripture. I say to a person, describe to me your conversion. What is the object of your faith? But then I go on and say, tell me about what, what did you experience? I mean, wh what did God do to you? And a lot of times they'll do that. And so we go and we compare that to Scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone says the object of their faith is their canary, you know <laughs> from the get-go that they're, they're off. Yeah, so yeah. deal with that and then go on to the next and then go on to something that's quite overlooked in modern day. It wasn't in the past. But it is now. And that is examining their life in light of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And again, let me say this because I've heard critics. I, I don't know if they're listening or they don't want to listen. But we are not talking about saying to someone, if you have sin in your life, you're not a believer. That, that's a lie. Yeah. We all have sin in our life. We're not saying that a believer can't backslide. Mm -hmm. We're not saying that a believer cannot fall in, in terrible sin. Mm -hmm. What we are saying is they can't stay there and live there Amen. their entire life. Amen. I'm sorry. Because yes. you know Hebrews chapter 12 is very clear. God is not a derelict father. Mm -hmm. If he belongs to them you know, and they belong to him, he is going to discipline them. Mm -hmm. I, I think we've moved on, and there's a question. I, I'm going to have to go through some of these texts in a minute and, and create these questions uh, because there's stacks of them coming in, and I want to do But there, I, I noticed one in here which I think is very relevant to, to, to what you've just said, and that is that, that they're asking the question, isn't it that we are to make disciples? 
And it seems to me that what you're saying, and, and whether it's you personally or people that you know right. can do it, having communicated that this person needs to repent, this person needs mm -hmm. to change life, you don't just get them to make the decision and, and off you go. You then make disciples of them. You sit with them and sit through them till they do, by the grace of God and by the, uh, the, 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 the revelation of the Holy Spirit, understand the scriptures. That seems to me to be missing in so much or so many of our churches and certainly so many of our evangelistic uh, situations. Yes. Yes. Let me say something about discipleship that's very important, and, and this may be the, the most important moment of this interview. I can only speak for my own country, and so I will. Mm. We have so reduced the gospel. We have drained it of much of its power. So much of what's called the gospel today is, is not the gospel. It is a little, uh, I don't know, a little group of five things God wants you to know. Then we get people to pray a prayer. And since we started doing that in the United States of America, we have been overwhelmed with people who claim to be Christian and yet have no evidence thereof, no reality of the Christian life. Now, what has happened? We've looked at it, and instead of saying, maybe the gospel we're preaching is not right, and maybe our invitation's not right, and maybe the manner that we deal with souls is not right. Instead of doing that, what we've done is we need discipleship. Mm. So what we do is we go out and we try to disciple these people into sheep. Now here's something you need to understand. You can't do that. No. Discipleship cannot change the nature of a human being. Only God can change a goat from a goat to, to a sheep. Amen. And so first of all, the fundamental problem, and this I feel is really, really the issue, is we have, after, I, I guess around the 60s and the 70s and 80s, everything was discipleship, discipleship. Mm -hmm. People are coming in the front door of the church and going out the back because we're disi not discipling them. That is simply not true. They're coming in the front door and they're going out the back because they never were truly converted because we're not really preaching the gospel and we're not dealing with souls as we ought to. Mm -hmm. Listen to what Jesus says here. My sheep, that's anyone that has been converted, okay, that's not a special group. My sheep hear my voice. He doesn't say, I want them to. He doesn't fold his hands and say, how I hope they do. No, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So the issue here is a lack of conversion. But when we do conversion truly, biblically, as it's done throughout Christian history, when we deal with souls and they are converted, then we disciple. We need to disciple more than ever. Why? Because our children, our adults, everyone, our youth are being bombarded 16, 18 hours a day with the secular mind. We need to disciple, renew their mind in the Word. But discipleship cannot take the place of conversion. Mm -hmm. But it, it follows, it needs to follow on yes. from conversion. Yes. And so if you simply, um, even if that, that individual is converted, yes, God has done something, but, but they're very, and they're so susceptible still to all yes. that's going on. They need the strength mm -hmm. of others. They, they, they need that fellowship is really what you're saying, isn't it? Exactly. And they need to understand the gospel. Listen, 
Is you've it, mentioned that, so yeah, I'm going to have to ask you the question. What is the gospel? Well, <laughs> let, me, let me say this. Isn't it amazing that someone hears uh, a message, they come forward, how long are they usually counseled in that meeting yeah. before you know every, they turn him around and say, welcome him into the family of God? A lot of times it's five minutes. Yeah. Now, we have taken the most important part of Christianity, which is the conversion of a person. You don't get that right, you've got everything else wrong. We've taken that one thing and we've dealt with it five minutes. Mm. The Puritans and others would deal with it for all that. They always dealt with it. Now, with regard to the gospel, you know, as I've said, um, in a nutshell, let me just give you the greatest problem around which the gospel is, is centered. And it is this. It is the character of God. Mm. Our greatest problem as mankind is that God is good. Mm. Now someone says to me at a university, they said, how can that be a problem? I said, well, let me put it this way. A criminal is not afraid of a corrupt judge. Yes. He can bribe him. Yes. The corrupt judge is just like him. Yeah. The criminal is afraid of a good one. Yeah. Well, Brother Paul, what are you saying? Our greatest problem is that God is good and we're not. The issue is, and, and Paul makes this statement in probably the most important passage in the Bible in Romans 3, how can God be a just God and at the same time justify or pardon the wicked? That's the greatest dilemma. Proverbs 17.15 says that anyone who justifies the wicked is an abomination before God. So how can God justify the wicked without being an abomination? Mm -hmm. There's only one way. God has decreed that He would save man by satisfying His own justice through the death of His Son. And His Son voluntarily took up that ministry. God became a man. He walked on this earth and did what Adam could not do. He lived a perfect life. He went to that tree according to the foreordained plan of God. And on that tree, He bore the guilt. He bore the sins of His people. And what we need to understand is is many people think that somehow our sins were atoned for because the Romans beat Jesus up. That the, even though what was done to him on that tree was necessary, it was required that there be a bloody sacrifice, the physical sufferings of Christ are very important. What we need to understand is this. What happened on that tree is that Christ died forsaken of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the wrath... The fierce, holy hatred of God against the evil of men was poured out on His Son. Have you never read, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. Christ suffering our wrath and then dying in our place, what did He do? He satisfied the demands of God's justice. He appeased the wrath of God and He made it possible for a holy, righteous God to pardon wicked men and still be just because He paid the penalty with His own Son. Mm -hmm. On the third day He rose again from the dead and He is seated at the right hand of God. All authority, all power is granted unto Him and God now commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel. Mm -hmm. Or at least the gospel yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I, I, I'm going to ask some of these questions. I, some of them you may have already touched upon. You may want to say, I've, I've said all I want to say, you may want to say more, but there's some very interesting questions that in one way are going to develop 
I think, what you have been saying there. Um, Nigel um, sent three questions in, but the, the, the final one was this. What's your formula for leading someone to Christ? Should we not pray with them? Should we ever call someone a Christian given that tears can be easily amongst the wheat and often hard to spot, especially in this age of deception? Okay. Well, the Apostle Paul referred to people that he knew as saints. So we can call other people Christians. Um, this is a, a very, very important point. A very important point. Could you give me the question again? I want to be yeah. sure that I've got it. Yep. Um, yeah. What's your formula for leading someone to okay. Christ? Should we not pray with them? That's, that's really okay. the first part. The second part, should we ever that's emphasized right. call someone a christian given that tears can be easily amongst the weak okay. and often hard to spot well my formula um and and there is a sense of following a biblical order on preaching the gospel to them answering their questions spending time with them making sure they understand the things i've said in this small gospel presentation then i tell them do you know that what God now commands you to do? He commands you to repent and to believe. And then I began to explain repentance to them. I was uh, uh, sharing Christ with a, um, um, a, a Mexican man a while back in my home. And uh, I said, have you repented? And he said, well, I'm not really sure. And so I began to talk to him and I began to go down through Scripture and explain to him repentance. And he goes, Yes! I've done, I'm doing that right now! <laughs> I said, Okay. I said, Now the Bible says that we must believe. And so I started going down through passages of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, what is faith? And he goes, Yes! I've, I've done that, Brother Paul. I'm throwing myself upon Christ. I'm not trusting in anything else. I've even repented of my works and that I'm not trusting in them anymore, just like you said. All right, so that answers the first question. You deal with them right. scripturally. And, and again, put the coffee on. It could take a long time. <laughs> Tea in England. Tea, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never been rather culturally sensitive. <laughs> well, anyways... Then, here's the thing. Let me give you the, 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 best the, the best illustration I can find. When someone says, Brother Paul, I believe. I, I, I believe he saved me. Mm -hmm. I, I'll look at them and I'll say, wonderful. Wonderful. Why should I doubt? Why, why should I pour water on a fire? Mm. I say, wonderful. If you have truly repented and if you have truly believed, you are saved and we can glory in that. But now, I love you so much, I want to tell you something. You've, you've looked at Scripture and you've seen logically he who believes has eternal life. You, you sense that God's done something in your life. He's shown you these things. You have a peace about it. That's wonderful. Now, let's talk about an ongoing evidence. Amen. And it's this. God is going to begin to work in your life. And I make sure, again, that I tell them, boy, it's a struggle. It is a struggle. You know, God's not like man. He'll patiently work with us on one particular sin for 26 years now that I'm a Christian. You see, he, he's, he's a loving, patient, kind father, but he will be working. And I tell them, look, if you go out from here tonight and you 
turn away from this and none of it has any meaning and you just go on about your life and there's no evidence of God's working, you need to be afraid. And, and not afraid that, oh, they've done something wrong and they've lost their salvation. No. They need to be afraid that this is evidence that maybe Christ has not truly worked in their life. And again, I want to iterate. Christians fall. Christians struggle with sin. All sorts of things. But I'm talking over the course of someone's Amen. life. They're going to see God working. Amen. You know, He says that. Amen. He's going to put His Spirit within them and cause them to walk in His ordinances, His commandments, Ezekiel 36. And what I'm trying to get away from is not only just, not only do I want to teach the Scriptures, not only do I want to stand in history with other men of God who taught this, but I also know the day I'm in where countless millions of people walk around just totally oblivious to God, caring for nothing, but they believe they're saved because one time in their life they prayed that prayer and some religious authority proclaimed over them that they mm. were saved. Do, do, you, do you think also in, in, in the days that we're living in that what we've talked about as the changes of God in our life to, to make us more holy, to make us more like Him, that sometimes some of those things have got redefined and we can actually think we're becoming more like him, but in actual fact we're not because we've we've taken the the culture rather than the, right. than the word, and and it's important, is it not, that we take our definitions not from just what's going on around us and because that person's done that, I do that, but what God's word says. Yes, we must be constantly renewing our mind in the word of God. You know, uh, Calvin said, "Our hearts are idol factories." I would say that we all seem to have something of a left foot, an ability to stray, mm. an ability to get confused. Listen, we live in an age, we're literally an age of media where what? If we're awake 16 hours, we're being bombarded 16 mm. hours with worldliness. Mm. And then what? 15 minutes in the Word of God? Mm. Or even pastors and preachers that are running around doing absolutely everything other than being in the Word of God in prayer for hours a day? And so we have got to have a word from God to redirect us in the midst of this culture. Mm -hmm. And not only that, brother, but there's a real important point. In hermeneutics, which is the study of how to study the Bible, yeah. there is a very important principle. We ought to do our theology in the context of the church. Now, what does that mean? It means if, if I interpret a passage and say, this means this, well, or this is what my Bible says, well, what I need to do is I need to take this interpretation and I need to compare it to contemporary interpretations of Orthodox Christianity, but I need to go back through church history. I need to look at the men and women of God and the movements of God that we all recognize as bearing fruit of warm evangelicalism. And we need to ask ourselves, if they're all in agreement and I disagree with them on this passage, <laughs> who's wrong? Yeah. You see? Yes. And that's something we're not doing anymore. Somehow, we've all decided that we're just going to cut ourselves away from 2,000 years of Christian history. Mm. And, and that is what gets us in trouble, mm. you mm. see. Mm. Rob, Rob asked, which I may move on uh, to, to what you've just said there. Could, could you define evangel evangelicalism? That's it. And is the push for decisional regeneration in the church today largely because the church is no longer truly evangelical well 
I have to say this. Um, I'm working on a, a thing right now, and, and uh, the term evangelical keeps popping up in what I'm writing. And, and I've come to the decision, I, I just can't use that term anymore. Evangelical. I mean, when, when, I guess when John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones and others used that term, it, it seemed to have some meaning about it. Yes. Now evangelical means almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have a hodgepodge of absolutely everything. But what is really dangerous, I feel, in the evangelical community today is this. Before there was the evangelical and the liberal you know, uh, the denying the Trinity, mm -hmm. denying all the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And, and the dividing line was very, very clear. Mm. Now, because theology is not considered that important, doctrine is not considered that important, people are not using the scriptures as standards. And there's almost a neoliberalism within evangelicalism. Say all the right things. Mm. But when it comes down to it, and this is very important, they're not really going by Scripture. Now here's something I want to say that's very important. If I believe, or anyone believes, that the Scriptures are inspired, are infallible, they come to that conclusion, they need to know that's only half the battle. That's only half of it. Mm -hmm. Now you've got to make another step, and if you don't make that step, then your first step doesn't matter at all. It's annulled. And that is this. Not only must I believe that the Scriptures are inspired and infallible, I must believe they are sufficient, yes. as Paul told young Timothy, yeah. so that the man of God adequately equipped, you see. And that's what the evangelical community is no longer doing. Yeah. It is not the sociologist, the psychologist, the anthropologist, or even this uh, cultural church, church growth guru who is to set the standard and determine the course for the church. The church's course is to be determined by the exegete, the man who studies the scriptures, and the theologian. What does the scripture say regardless of what my culture's response is to it? And that's why the word evangelical doesn't yeah, mean much anymore. Um, it's another question which is a slight variation on, on, on this of, of, of being changed um, uh, and, and whether we are being changed. And it starts off, what do you think about going to church every Sunday? Okay, then it, then it explains it. What the, why they say. I've heard people saying, because the people who go to church are not true Christians, then there's no point in going to church. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I would question the logic of that, but I'm not going to debate it. No. It's a non-issue, and here's why. Jesus Christ commanded. Now, but, but let's just look at that terminology for a moment. Go to church. Okay, find that in the New Testament. Mm. I'm going to church. Yes. It, it, it doesn't even make sense biblically. Yep. You see, going to church. We've identified church with a building. We've identified it with a ritual, a cult, something that we do, some mm. type of service even. Mm. You're, it, it, we're not to go to church. We're to be a part of a church, fellowshipping with one another in love, sacrificing for one another in love, iron sharpening iron, encouraging, so on and so forth. Mm. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest evidences, according to First John, that a person is truly converted is that they love the brethren. Yes. And they're involved in their life with practical works of love. Mm -hmm. 
Amen. Is, is, is this living? I mean, as, as Peter talks about it, it's living stones. We're, yes. we're, 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 it's not the dead stones of the building. You can yes. be in beautiful, you know, or ramshackle or in the middle of nowhere. But it, it, it's as living stones we're being built together. We, we are the church. I, I, I was brought up with that teaching. You, know, you can't leave your umbrella in the church, yeah. you know, because you are the church. Right. And how true that is. And yeah. I think we've lost something of that today in 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 this interaction between uh, we you know we we can somehow have such large meetings that are not broken down to small ones but that we've lost that interaction right. so we're not the church anymore from, right. from that point of view oh, I, it's your evening I'm wonderful start freezing. no keep <laughs> hi, going hi paul uh, i have prayed and asked god to save me about eight or more times with tears but i don't seem any better help Okay. Um, it, they say no more than that, obviously. So, I can't. do they have their email there? Uh, no, it's a, it's a it's a text. So I imagine they would be listening, though. They will be listening, absolutely. Well, so please speak to them, Paul. I, I, I'll be at the I'll be at the Martin Lloyd Jones conference too. They run by there. I'll talk to them. Yeah. Where, where's that? I have no idea. We'll have to ask somebody. <laughs> That's why I have someone else traveling with me. They say, you know, just put him in a pulpit. He doesn't know anything else. But the the but, other but, thing, of course, they, they yeah. you have a website where people can make contact yes. with you, which yes. is the, uh, heartcrymissionary.com. Yes. Um, and, and we'll make sure those details are in the office. So you get, but, 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 but are there, is, is there yes. any general, I mean, obviously there's maybe specific reasons here, but are there right. any general pointers? Yes, first of all, there? first of all. Anyone seeking after God, and, and as, as they say here with tears, anyone seeking with, after God ought to have the greatest of confidence that God's going to find them. God doesn't run from people who seek Him. Mm -hmm. Everyone who seeks Him, of that group, no one will be disappointed. I would encourage that person to continue seeking, but here's something that, that I want to state. There, there are... An old saint in the United States, he said this many, many times. He said, you can walk a thousand miles that way and be in falsehood, and a thousand miles that way and be in falsehood. But to walk in the truth is like walking on the edge of a razor blade, and you can fall off on either side. Mm -hmm. Now, I have met people who treat salvation so superficially that it's almost nothing. But I've also met people who make it so complex that they almost shut the doors of heaven and don't let anybody enter. It comes down to it fundamentally is this, believing upon Christ. I would ask this person, do you see yourself as destitute of hope apart from Jesus Christ? Do you see that, that, that your works can do nothing to save you? I would, you know, that's what I would encourage them. Come to that point. Do you really realize that? Secondly, do you realize that Christ is mighty to save and willing to save all who come to Him? And then go through the passages of Scripture that encourage that, to teach that. And just read over them, pray over them, cry out to God. He will not fail. But let me say one other thing that's very important. Many times also, a person will come to Christ on their own terms, though with tears. Mm. And an illustration that a, a dear brother, Charles Leiter, gave me years ago is this. They found a, a lot of eagles 
there in the north, the United States, with big salmon in their talons and, and dead on the side of the, the beach. And they're wondering what's going on. Until they figured it out that these, these uh, I don't know if it's an urban legend, but it makes for a great <laughs> illustration. <an> illustration. <laughs> um, these things were coming down into the water and they were grabbing a hold of that fish. They wanted that fish so bad, they would not let go. And yet it was so heavy, they couldn't pull it out. And they drowned rather than let go. I know of uh, the story of, of one lady who did not come to Christ for so, for so long, even though with many tears she sought Him, because there was one thing she would not let go of, and it was this. She was afraid that if she surrendered to Christ, He would not let her be a missionary, and that was her plan. Right. Do you see how so many yes. things can get yes. in the way? Ask yourself, you know, is there something that God's dealing with me about that I'm just not willing to mm. let go? Mm. And again, when I say willing to let go, I'm not saying that you let go of it and it'll never come into your life yes. again. I'm talking about a change of mind toward yes. it. Yeah. This is the thing. Like yeah. that rich young ruler. Yeah. yeah. You know, that was the thing. Do you think also sometimes these days it's because we don't feel in the way that we've been led to expect we should feel? So so often the gospel is everything will be okay, all your problems will be solved, right. or along to the terrible, you know, you'll be a millionaire tomorrow and, and, and all right. of that. But whatever it is, and that's the expectation they're given. And here comes this, uh, in tears... But that isn't how she feels, because right. that may not be true. Do you, do you see a problem with that as well, that what, we've been, what we're leading people to expect yes. can stop them from, yes. from really moving in? When God saves a man, he works life in that man. But there is another sense in which he also begins to work death in them. Hmm. You see, the Christian life is about the glory of God. On our side of it, it is about being conformed to the image of Christ. And that, that goal, that sunum bonum, that greatest good of God in our life, He'll stop at nothing to accomplish it. You see, and it's like this. You know, you know the prayer um, that is known as the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It is prayed like this in the Christian life. Father, my greatest passion is that your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. If, if through my prosperity that can be accomplished in my life and in the life of the others, then so be it. If through my poverty, then so be it. If, if by raising me from this, this deathbed, your kingdom can be advanced, then raise me. And if your kingdom can be advanced by my death, let me crumble to dust. Mm. You see, there are so many preachers out there whose God is their stomach. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they're leading many people astray. Mm -hmm. mm. Um. This, uh, Zoe is referring to Matthew seven twenty one to 23, the verses just after the, the fruit that we were talking about now. And she asked this, how do you explain the many emphasized Christians to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you in Matthew seven twenty one to 23, even though they were committed, zealous Christians, busy doing many wonderful works in Jesus' name. Well, they were committed and they were zealous. Whether they were Christians or not <laughs> is to be debated right. because we see that ultimately they are judged. Mm -hmm. Here's something that, let me, I hope I'm not dealing in a way that's too, uh, 
I don't know. Did Flamboyant no, with no. the text. Listen, okay. that's one thing yeah. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but let, let, let me say, let me just give you an illustration, just, just to kind of put this in perspective. It's not the main argument, but it's one that people understand. Now, they come before the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, and, and their argument is this. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Now, I want to, let's just do a um, hypothetical situation here, okay? Let's suppose, for just one moment, Jesus Christ makes a mistake on the day of judgment, and there is a Christian standing before him, and he just made a mistake, and he looks at that Christian, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. A true Christian is not going to stand there and argue this way. But Lord, I prophesied. I cast out demons. I did all sorts of miracles. I did this. I did that. I, I, I. No, that Christian would bow his head and say, But Lord, I know in sin I was conceived. I know that every commandment I have broken. But I threw myself upon you. I trusted in you. I hoped in you. I counted every other confidence as rubbish and cast my life upon you. You see, these people are works-oriented, self-glorying individuals who believe that God owes them something for their ministries of power and everything else they've done. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and, and that you can't do. I mean, no. that God is going to deal with that, isn't he? Yes. Be, 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 because that is what Jesus did. He gave up everything yes. for us. Yes. And that's what he's going to work in us. Yes. Uh, L- let me get a plug in here on something. Ahead. We have come today to equate large ministries with yes. godliness. Yes. This man has a large ministry. Therefore, he must be a godly man. I was preaching years ago in a church that needed a pastor. And when I came down out of the pulpit the first time, they didn't really know me or that. came down to the pulpit. The pulpit committee walked up to me and said, we want you to be our pastor. And I looked at them and I said, and it, with a smile, I said, are you crazy? <laughs> and they said, well, what do you mean? I said, you don't know if I love my wife. You don't know my character. You see, mm-hmm. we equate ministry with Christ-like character, and that is not true. Mm-hmm. I myself know that oftentimes I'm in an auditorium, and I'm preaching, and thousands of people are there, and I'll look down and see a brother who, who's no one knows, but I know him, and I know that he's forgotten more about God than I'll ever know, and with regard to character and Christ-likeness, I can't even hold a candle to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's about character. It's not about ministry. Mm. So the fact that they do works does not necessarily mean that they that they were, were a Christian in the first place. Do you have any have any idea what an opportunity ministry is for self glorification? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the, you're not even up there dancing with other people. Yeah. You're up there behind the pulpit all by yourself. Mm-hmm. You're the center of the show, and maybe that's one of our problems. Yes. Yes. Do you see that? So, you know, there, I know many men who have very, very fruitful ministries and they're very godly. But, but that, the size of the ministry and the so-called success of it. Mm. It's not the issue. Uh, no, not the it's issue. It's no standard. We're going to open the phone lines in, in just a minute. Let me get through a couple more. I, I've actually been flicking through the emails to find out if anybody disagrees with you. And can I say, Paul, I can't find one. So they're all on the phone lines. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> they want to get to you personally, don't they? <laughs> um, but but here's a. I, I think this is a question which sometimes people just ask as a throwaway line. I think it's very genuine in in the text here, and I think some people do have a problem over this. Do you believe a truly saved person can lose their salvation or even throw it away in the light of the letters written to churches in Revelation? Um, you know that. That's a battle that's raged down through the centuries, and I'm certainly not going to be able to deal with Some it in, in just a few, um, few things. But let, let, me say, let me say this, and uh, it's a text that I think is very, very good. He says this, with regard to the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. Mm -hmm. Now listen to what he says. If. Can't throw that if out. If you hold fast the word I preach to you. Now the, log the logical opposite there is if you do not hold fast to this word I preach to you, you are not saved. Mm -hmm. Now, does Paul, is Paul teaching that a genuine believer can fall away? I don't think so. There's too many other texts to the contrary, and it's not a necessary interpretation here. What I have found in the most consistent men down through history, and what I have found in Scripture is this. What he is simply teaching is what is always being taught. The genuine believer, the person who has truly repented unto salvation, believed unto salvation, is the one who saved him, keeps him. But also we have this thing in that the evidence of this genuine work is that this person who has been saved will continue on, mm -hmm. holding on to the Word, growing in the things of God. And if a person comes to us and makes a profession of faith with tears and all sorts of things, it may even seem to bear fruit, as in the case of the sower. Sprang up quickly, seemed to bear fruit, and then died away. What we have there is simply this, a false conversion. They went out from us because they never were of us. And so the continuing on aspect of our salvation demonstrates its authenticity. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, let's open the phone lines, 0208-972-1408, 0208-972-1408. Um, if you've got a comment, if you can keep it as brief as possible, if you've got a question, if you can be succinct, and we get through as, uh, as many uh, as we can. And I know Paul will be the first one to say he doesn't know everything, but he's sharing from his heart, and he will share uh, from his heart um, uh, with you. And we've already got a caller on the line. David. Good evening, David. Yes, hello, Paul. That's hello. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do for you tonight, David? Yes, I'm just following on from what was just being said. Surely those who endure to the end are saved, aren't they? Yes. And they can fall away at any stage before that. Well, I just uh, think I address that issue in that those who endure the, to the end are demonstrating the authenticity of their salvation. It is those who fall away are not losing their salvation. I believe they're simply demonstrating that it was never truly a part of their life. Yes, but Hebrews 6 and 10 shows, surely, that people can be saved and then lose their salvation. Well, you and I would fundamentally disagree on the, that he is talking necessarily to a person who has been genuinely 
converted. And um, again, you know, I appreciate your question, and it, it demonstrates that you've thought a lot about this. And uh, we won't be able to solve the problem tonight, but I believe, again, that he's referring back even, again, to Matthew 13. Because if you notice, there's no indication that that person there ever bears fruit. Thorns are being sprung up from them, but not fruit. And I believe their falling away indicates that they were never truly converted. Well, I, I, I thank you for your question. I believe that you can have fruit and then lose it. I, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> that there will always there, those, there will be those two sides. And uh, yeah, uh, David, thank you for, uh, for, for for that point of view. And uh, yeah, bless you. And I know many many would agree with you. Many would yes. agree with Paul. And uh, I'm sure that's going to be a debate that will come back to Genesis and Revelation yeah. a number of times yet. But as Paul says, it hasn't been solved yet, and I don't think it will ever be solved yeah. until the Lord comes back. And we fully Maybe. understand it. Brother, yeah. let, let me say this. Um, you've thought through this. I love you. <laughs> and I pray that you continue bearing fruit until the end and look forward to seeing you one day in glory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, David. Thank you. Um, just to remind you, uh, regular viewers, that, have to, that unfortunately we, can only, we can't stack calls up at the time, so we can only get the next caller on when the first caller's off. So as soon as that first caller goes off, make sure you're ringing and we'll be able uh, to get through uh, as, uh, as, as many as we can. Um, uh, th this is a text here which develops a little more than that. Um, uh, well, okay, no, we've got another caller on the line, so we'll go there first of all. Uh, hello, good evening. Hello, good evening. Um, this is a question for Brother Paul. Yes. Yes. Um, I was wondering about children. If they pass on before they make that conscious decision, or before they are aware that there's a decision to give their lives to Christ, are, are they not saved, or are they saved? Well, that is a... That is a very uh, difficult and a very personal question. Um, let me say this. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, there's this great Calvinistic Arminian debate that goes on, and so many times the Calvinists are accused of saying that babies go to hell, and, and people seem to relish making that statement. The fact of the matter, it, it just simply isn't true. Uh, so many Calvinistic theologians have wrestled with this issue. Very few of them that I know of any credibility believe that uh, these tiny children are, are damned to hell for certain reasons. But let me say this. When I look through the Scriptures at the proof texts to say that all children uh, go to heaven. Let the little children come unto me. Um, David in regard to his son's death. So on and so forth. Th there are many of those passages that may indicate some hope for us. But I am a father and I have three little children from two years old to eight that I love immensely. And this is what I've come to grips with. When I go into the scriptures I cannot come away with, in my conscience, a solid exegesis or a solid answer to this question of exactly what happens to children. I, I can't. 
I know that from what I know about the character of God, I feel safe for my children. But let me say, I think the problem needs to be removed to another area, and it's this. I don't know what God's going to do with regard to direct answers from Scripture. But I know who God is. I know He is good. I know He is loving. I know He is just. Now, I'm not saying that I can define those categories and place them back over to God. I'm just saying this. I, as a believer, look in the Scriptures and do not find clear-cut answers either way. But I know this. My God is faithful. He's not going to rip anybody off. He is a just God. He is loving. And I would rather have the destiny of my child in the hands of God than I would in myself. You see, one of the problems today is this. When we do not have specific, hardcore answers with regard to something, we'll go invent some. Why? Because we have not come to the point where we can trust, even blindly, in the attributes of God. Again, like I said, if, if I come close to idolatry in anything, it's with regard to my children. I love them dearly. And I, I, I witness to them every night. But if they were to pass on, even tonight, I would not be hoping in some verse that was pulled out of a certain narrative or out of a certain teaching in a certain place. I would not cling on to an iffy interpretation of that verse. I would cling on to the fact that I know my God and He's good. And on Judgment Day, I will raise my hands and swear that the God of all the earth has done right. Mm. So trust in the nature and character of your God and you won't be disappointed. Thank you. Does that help? Yeah, thank you very much. Great. Bless you. Thank you for your call. Um, one text here which uh, and if we could just answer is, what exactly is the unforgivable sin? <laughs> <laughs> Can this occur in the heart, they go on to say. Yeah. What is the unforgivable sin? First yes. John. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I do believe that if a person has committed it, uh, it, is the, it seems to be something of possibly a seared conscience, something extraordinary. And the other interpretation here is uh, maybe weak in some people's eyes, but it is an interpretation, and I'd like to also give it, and that is that um, a man can be forgiven for murder, a man can be forgiven for all sorts of things. But for a man to turn his back on the testimony of the Holy Spirit with regard to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, for that one thing, there is no forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that some people hold to that, and it, it seems to me to be a, uh, a possible interpretation, and I know that others do not. But um, that's where I'm at. I don't know. And if I, if I were to say anything, I would point the person once again to this. Every sin that I know of can be forgiven apart from rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit with regard to the person of Jesus. And I think if somebody's concerned about the unforgiven sin, they wouldn't have committed that no, one yet. No, no, no. <laughs> and it is. And, and it, it, 
it, again, it goes back to relationship with God, doesn't it? It yes. goes back to, to walking with him and, and, and that. Yes. And, and looking on that which he has done, rather than that which we might do, but looking on that which he has done uh, for right. us at this time. That's true. And th there is some, you know, some debate, some people think so, some people not, that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the same thing John is talking about. There's arguments possibly for that and against it. In that case, we do know that these men seem to know that it was the Spirit bearing witness to the Messiahship mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ. And they willingly, knowingly attributed that to the work of Satan. Amen. We're joined now by Samson. Good evening, Samson. Good evening. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing fine, thank you. And All right. What can we do for you tonight? Yes, uh, I just want to um, um, bring up again what one of the previous scholars spoke, spoke about. I think that was Daisy. Yes. And I'd like to do that by reading the book of Revelation chapter 2. Okay. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have some what against thee, because thou hast left thy first law. Yes. And uh, this is Christ talking to the church here. But in verse 5 it says, Rem Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Uh -huh. Now, you cannot fall unless you have been standing before. Mm -hmm. And he says, And repent, and do thy first work, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick, out of his place, except thou repent. And I just, you know, want to um, ask the, the, you know, the guest uh, yes, Paul, Paul, yes. about, you know, the possibility. We don't pray for it. We know it's not something that we should really discuss with, with, you know, with, with joy. But the possibility of as a believer, you know, being careless and losing his salvation, you know, because from these words, Christ says, if we don't repent, and that, you know, Paul also mentioned that earlier, that that word if also means that if you do not repent, the consequences is that, you know, you lose your salvation. Well, that's a very good question. The one area where you and I would disagree is that if you'll note in the context in chapter 2, it's a message to the church in Ephesus. And the church as a whole seems to have lost its first love. And what he is saying is... When he talks about removing your lampstand, he's not talking about one individual losing their salvation, but simply the presence of God coming out of that congregation, something of an Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed, and it's ceasing to exist as a vital congregation. And we can go all over the United States of America, especially New England, here in England, the United Kingdom, and we see examples of this everywhere churches that are now disco church buildings that are now discotheques the churches are totally disbanded and so in this case he's talking about a church and not an individual mm -hmm. but if, if we read some of the other messages to the churches we see where he actually specifies to some people that for instance the church at studies he says you have a few names of people who by the grace of god have not defiled themselves Mm -hmm. So we can actually see that Christ is making a distinction here, even within the, within the church, that there are some people in the church who, by the grace of God, at the time this was being written, the church in studies, for instance, that the believers, some of the believers were actually standing by the, faith, by, by the faith, keeping to the word, holding on to Christ. But there were some other people who were not, and that, there was that distinction. So it wasn't just to the church as a whole, uh, well, I think, but rather they were actually specifically, mm -hmm. uh, specifically 
referring to the lives of some of the people inside the church. Well, if, if you look to verse 2, just, just quickly, I know your deeds and your toil per, and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have uh, perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so the very people that he is complimenting, that he is saying they've done all these wonderful things, are the very same people that have lost their first love. And the point that he's making is you have become very strict doctrinally. You are greatly concerned about purity, that everyone does exactly what they're supposed to do, crosses every T, dots every I, but you have lost your first love, which is the most important thing. So it's not two different groups. The group he's complimenting is also the group he's reproving. Okay. Thank right, you, thanks. Samson. I think we, we'll leave it there. Uh, obviously, the, again, there, there are two sides to it, but Paul has shared, and we'll try and get a, at least one more phone call in. But thank you very much, Samson, for that point. Um, simple text here. Brother Paul, do you think the first apostles were Calvinists? <laughs> <laughs> you could have a heyday yeah, yeah, no. if you wanted to take that one apart, couldn't you? Oh, it goes back much farther than that. <laughs> no, listen, listen, please. You know, you know, people will come up to me and they'll say, Brother Paul, are you a Calvinist? And um, I won't answer them. And this is why. When I ask most people what they think a Calvinist is, they come up with some of the most terrifying, distorted views of a person who believes in sovereign grace. And so it's impossible to answer that question because f most people, especially those who are writing books against it, I can only say this, either they are intentionally deceiving, trying to build a straw man, or they don't understand sovereign grace at all. Because the things they write in those books, I, I don't know a person who believes those things. A, a great person who deals with this is, is James White, and he says the same thing. I mean, the things they call a Calvinist, I don't know any Calvinist who believe it. So that's a very hard question. Another thing, let me say this. The issue for me, and what I see in Scripture, and what I see in church history, the church has always been revived and souls have been brought into the kingdom when people have returned to a true doctrine of biblical regeneration rather than simply believing someone is converted because they prayed a prayer or were baptized as an infant. My goal in my ministry, if, if, if you've listened to anything I preach, I don't preach Calvinism, I, don't pre I just preach this. Christ died for men. Men are dreadfully and terribly depraved. And it is the supernatural, supernatural Spirit of God that must resurrect them from the dead. And that Spirit who begins that work in them will finish it. Now, I hold to the five points. But being a Baptist, I prefer to call myself a five-point Spurgeonist. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> that, that, that's a whole other program there. <laughs> uh, our final caller for tonight, uh, Jennifer. Good evening, Jennifer. Hi, good evening. Um, is it okay for me to share what's in my heart? Uh, we, yeah, if you could be just brief about it, because we've got a few minutes left, please. Yeah. 
Um, what I actually wanted to share with my brother, I don't know if you heard about this guy, um, was a fantastic man of God who died and he was brought back to life after three days. And one of the things that was revealed, and he was actually in Trinidad sharing his testimony, is where basically he had gotten into a debate with his wife and she hit him and cut a long story short. He was taken down to hell and he was told that's where he was going to be because he hadn't forgiven his wife. And one of the things I know basically that God wants us to do and his word is where we have to really live. If, if we're struggling with sin, he says confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We've got to forgive because if we don't, that's where definitely many could lose their salvation. And it's something that we have to literally look into God's word and live by. You know, we can't compromise. We can't literally practice religion. We've got to obey and do what God says. And we have to have that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. And I mean, when we look at the story of the ten virgins, five yeah. wise and five foolish, five are going to be left behind. Okay, and Jennifer, thank you. Sorry, yeah, we're going to have to... Uh, the Spirit of God. Jennifer, thank you. You've uh, you made the point. Let me... We, we're running out of time. So, Paul, do, do, do you want to respond to about that whole area of forgiving and forgiving others? The, the Christian life one of the characteristics of the Christian life is that it's confessional. That doesn't just mean we confess Christ. It means that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. We are uh, being, it is being revealed to us our sin and we confess that sin as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. You know, uh, the word confession means, it comes from the Greek word homologeo, which means to speak the same thing. The Spirit of God, through the Word, speaks to us about our sin, and we agree with God and speak that verdict back to Him and ask for forgiveness. We are also to be a people who are forgiving of others. We who have been who have we've been received into the kingdom of Christ. We've been forgiven of a debt that cannot even be counted. Of course, one of the evidences of true conversion is that we are going to forgive others. But let me say this. According to the scriptures, no one knows all their sin. No one has obeyed the commandments of God perfectly. So if I have to have a perfect record of forgiveness or a perfect record of any other deed, there's no hope for me. My hope does not rest in my ability to respond to the gospel or carry out all its commands, but in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Mm. Amen. Absolutely. Paul, we've talked a lot about sharing the gospel. We've talked a lot about making disciples. What about intercession? Just in a couple of minutes we've got left. Where does intercession come into all of this? Oh, wow. Um, I'm sorry, I've only got to give no, me a no, couple no. of minutes. Do, do I have, let, me, let me get over here real quick in my Bible. Um, first of all, let me say this. Men of God, women of God, all of us are called to, we're called to stand in the gap. Mm. We are. We're called to build up the wall and stand in the gap. But one of the things that we need to realize is this. We stand in the gap because that's the part of the wall that's been broken down. And that's the part of the wall that the enemy comes through. And according to that text in Ezekiel, the enemy coming through there, this is going to shock some of you, is God. It's the judgment of God coming upon the nation. The judgment of God coming upon a people. And what's so marvelous about the mercy and grace of God is even though because of our sin, because of this gap in the wall that sin has left, the judgment of God is coming, but God calls His people to stand in the gap and intercede for the wicked. And this is an amazing thing.
And so we ought to be building up the wall by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we ought to stand in the gap as Moses did for Israel, as Abraham did for Sodom. We ought to stand in the gap and plead with God over souls. Now, there, there are many things that, that I would love to say about this, but let, let me say something that's, that's very, very important. When I pray for souls, I pray out of Ezekiel 36. And this is what I pray. First of all, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Now, he's saying, Israel, I'm going to save you, not because you deserve it, but I'm going to save you for my glory. When I look at my children that I love so much, I know this. They are sinners. They are. They do not deserve to be saved. And if you say they do, you're against orthodoxy. So when I cry out to God, I'm saying, God, not just save them. Oh, am I lost here? I'm sorry. Paul, bless you. You're going to have to come back and finish I ask off. God to save them for His own glory. Amen. Bless you, Paul. Thank right. you for watching, everybody. See you again soon. Bye for now. Bye-bye.